Well, good morning. My name is Matt. I'm the youth director here at Christ Community Church. It's a joy to be with you all today. If you would, as the children are finding their way to their classrooms, if you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 21 through 23 this morning. And uh, if you've been in the Presbyterian circles for a while, you know that oftentimes when there are fewer verses, there's like this inversely proportional relationship between the length of the sermon and the number of verses. I promise I'm going to try to break that Presbyterian pattern and not preach for three hours, one per verse. But as you're turning your way there again to Colossians 1, 21 through 23, uh, I'd like to start out this morning just by asking a question. And the question is this, what in your life drives you to anxiety and uncertainty? And for a lot of us, the obvious answer is like, well, there's a big hurricane coming our way and I have relatives in Florida or I had relatives in Houston and that's the obvious answer. Or you can turn on the news and there are a bajillion other things that, that cause us just to, to worry and to wonder at what on earth is going on in this world we live in. Or maybe for you it's your work and that fills you with anxiety because a bad boss or unclear yet demanding expectations, that can take what would otherwise be a dream job and make it a nightmare. Or if you work in an environment that idolizes speed and efficiency, what can happen is you get so swept up into that, by the time you get home and you're off the clock, you can't unwind. Everything, you feel like you have to own every single second. Or perhaps, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, maybe something from your past tortures you and your every waking thought, something you did or something, a uh, trauma that happened to you dances upon the stage of your mind and is torturing your conscience. Or on the other hand, maybe for you, it's, it's your plans about the future. And you, you have all these plans, you have all these aspirations, all these dreams, you could answer that infamous interview question, where do you see yourself in five years? You could nail that. And yet, you look at your life, you look at how things are shaping up, and nothing's going according to plan. College is more expensive and harder than you thought. It's going to take you six years instead of four. You're not yet married. You thought you were going to marry somebody in that relationship that you put all that time into suddenly fizzles out or implodes. You don't yet have a job. Finances are tight. Perhaps if you're a parent, you look at your kids and they're going into adolescence, you're like, man, I don't know who's going to survive this, and maybe nobody. Or... If you're a student, surely if you're in middle school or you're in high school and even college, with all of, of the stress and the drama and the pressure from school and from status and from sports and all the things that are put upon you and all the questions you have about who you are and who you're going to grow up to be, surely you know what it's like to wrestle with uncertainty and anxiety. And so there's probably very few of us who would say that we don't wrestle with these things, at least in some way, even this morning. And so the question, the other question we have to ask then is where do you turn to find rest amidst the fray? And it's interesting to look at how for a lot of, of us in America, and maybe even all of us to one degree or another, the way entertainment has come to, to become something, not just something that sort of diverts and, and delights for a moment, but really that masks over and tries to swallow up the anxiety and uncertainty we face. <clears throat> like you look at the rise of Netflix and Amazon Prime Video and all these streaming services and the way we have limitless entertainment, and the way binging, has basically, binging TV shows has basically become a national pastime that replaces baseball because that's boring, who likes that? You, you look at that and you see that if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of times what we're doing there is we're losing ourselves and drowning ourselves in a story on the screen because of what's going on in the story in our own lives. And that we're, we're tired of being thrown for a loop. We're tired of, of everything going wrong 
And so even though there are plot twists and you get surprised by what happens on the screen, at least that's in your control. You can go to it when you want. It's always there. Even though all the while there's a storm raging in your heart and you're still anxious. And other times, and the opposite of that is sometimes some of us, what we'll do is to find rest and, and hope amidst the anxieties. We'll just keep moving. We'll, we'll try to find rest, paradoxically, in unending work. And as Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, he said, when skating over thin ice, our safety is in our speed. And for a lot of us, especially those of us who are, who are addicted to sort of the student mentality of do more, do it faster, do it better, that's our mantra, is that we're always doing more. We're never still, because we know that when we sit still, it's then that we hear our thoughts. It's then that we're reminded of the things that we don't like about ourselves or that haunt us from our past, and we don't know what to do with it. And so we won't necessarily look for hope. We'll just keep moving and hope that everything goes away. And the point is, then, that there's plenty in the world and in our hearts to pump us full of anxiety and uncertainty, and we all know that we're in need of something steadfast that will give us a hope we can cling to and a hope that, that you can take to the bank that's real. And we yearn for it and we'll try any superfood, we'll try any self-help book or, or medication or whatever it takes to try to find something that will give us stability. <clears throat> and yet, what we're gonna find in these three short and yet amazing verses is that the hope we need is right in front of us in Christ. The key truth from this passage is that Christ's supremacy and his sufficiency give us a steadfast hope in the midst of an ever-changing world that is groaning for reconciliation with God. And so if you would, turn your attention with me now to the text as we read Colossians 1, 21 through 23. And Paul writes this, he says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has proclaimed, been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And just to catch you up um, as a review, and maybe if this is your first morning with us since we've been in Colossians, so far, we've seen how Paul starts out and he's writing to this church that had actually seen a natural disaster. They had been, the, the town of Colossae had seen an earthquake, so things economically weren't the best for them. It was, a, it was a town that you would just sort of pass through. It wasn't a place to go to start a new business, and yet it was a place, in God's purposes, to start a new church. And Paul has not yet been to them, but he's writing to them, and he reminds them in the beginning, he says, I've heard that you have heard the gospel, and you received it in faith. And you're looking to Christ in hope and you're looking to the heavenly inheritance you have in Christ. And then he turns and he says, and since I've heard that you have faith in Christ, I've been praying for you. And I've been praying in particular that you would grow in your knowledge of God's will. And what that meant was that they would grow in their understanding of how much God loves them. And then he turns and he says, and the, the foundation of all of that is Christ, who is supreme over creation and over his church and who is sufficient to save you to the uttermost. And then he turns back to them in these verses and he says, and this is what that means for you. And so he's talked about hope. He's talked about his continuance and praying for them in their hope. He's talked about the substance and foundation and author of their hope, Christ. And now he's reminding them what they are to do with that hope. And he starts out though, in a really fascinating way, he starts out by telling the Colossians who they once were before they received Christ. And at root, 
<clears throat> they were alienated from God. Their sin had separated them from their creator. And it's not just a separation of distance, but ultimately it was measured in terms of their will and their desires. It was a, a, a war of hearts, so to speak. They were rebels set against the great king. And this is quite different from the story we often like to tell ourselves. Like if you take any intro to religion course at most universities or high schools, you're gonna be told sort of this language of, you know, we're all these, these pilgrims, we're all in search of something supernatural or divine, and we're all sort of neutral bands of, of pilgrims in search of something. And you, you might get one aspect of the truth and I might get another, and it, we can all sort of band together and put it together and it's all the same. And yet, what we know from the word of our God is that we're not neutral. Our default mode is not neutrality. Our default mode is direct hostility to our God. Outside of Christ, we are enemies of the state, so to speak. People who are totally antagonistic to God, his will, his character, his purposes. And it's significant that for Paul, he locates our hostility against God outside of Christ in our minds. And he's not, though, just referring to when he says mind, he doesn't just mean your brain or your intellectual capacities. The word he's using gets at both what we mean by our mind and our heart. He's talking about the way we make our decisions, the values, the ideas, the passions we have that guide the way we live our lives. He's saying it is there, the core of who you are, that you are hostile towards God if you're not in Christ. And he draws a connection. He's, he says, your alienation from God, your broken relationship with God leads to this hostile thinking and those things sort of reinforce each other and make the situation worse and that then is expressed in evil deeds. And it's crucial for us to understand how all of those things go together because although we tend to say um, that we, we believe in those things, uh, maybe in a Presbyterian circle, we're like, oh yeah, total depravity, I've got it. But when we think about being enemies of God, we're not too comfortable with that because it means that we are enemies with God. You have to, you have to realize the gravity of that. And especially in today's day and age, and especially for those of us who are, who are growing up in the millennial generation and the generations coming after that, we've got to pay attention to this because our mantra is, you be you and I'll be me. And yet that falls so far short of who we were made to be because that mantra of be true to yourself is based upon a very dangerous assumption. And yet that mantra is everywhere. It's like the essence of every Disney film for at least three decades. It is, it is the air we breathe. And in the philosophical world, we kind of talk about it as like, you know, it's not even an idea anymore. You just kind of assume it like, like air. And it's based upon the assumption, though, that the inner you is the best you you could possibly be. Like, think of every cheeky motivational speaker and you've ever heard of, and they usually say something exactly like that. But that's a devastating assumption because in reality, it does us no good to be true to ourselves if we are broken from the start, and broken, we surely are. We need something more in life to, to save us than pure authenticity. Because what matters isn't so much that we're being true to ourselves, but that we're in right relationship with God and being true to him. That is where the good and the meaningful life that we crave and long for comes from. And we all want that, but admitting that we're the problem, that we're broken and enemies of God, and we ourselves are what is keeping us back from that good life is a hard pill to swallow. Because we don't wanna be judged. We don't like being wrong. And whenever we do wrong somebody, we try to downplay it like the best of politicians. We're like, oh, I know I offended you, but I didn't mean to. And somehow that's supposed to make it better. 
Or I know I punched you and I made your arm go numb because you wouldn't let me, let me have my turn on the PlayStation, but I didn't give you an atomic wedgie, so it could have been worse. Like, I'm a gracious big brother. Or worse, in a more serious note, you know, I know I've been sexually involved with countless people and I've probably left this huge tear-stained trail of broken hearts, but it's always been consensual. I've always just been doing what other people be willing to do. I'm not that bad, right? I'm just doing what everyone else is doing. And so when it comes to our sin... And what it does to others, what it does to our relationship with God, we try to do that. We downplay it. We try to launch into some sort of defense. We're like, ah, you know, I've got enough decent things. Like, I wrote a nice check to the flood buckets this morning, so I'm passable, right? And you might be thinking to yourself, like, I'm not an enemy of God. I'm not out there like ISIS punching Christians in the face or worse or burning churches. I don't even read Richard Dawkins for crying out loud. Like, I don't really care what you believe. Keep it to yourself. That's fine. I'm not going to directly oppose God. I'm not a radical anti-theist. None of that. I'm just going to do me, leave you all alone. I'm not an enemy. Like, stop calling me that. But consider this. Because it's not just what we do to others or that we do, you know, shaking our fists to the heavens, so to speak, that makes us enemies of God. God is our creator. He has made every single one of us. And he created us for a purpose, to be in fellowship with him. And so whenever we do something that breaks that fellowship or that reinforces what is really already a broken fellowship because of the fallenness of this world, we are directly opposing God's purposes and his plans for creation. And so even if you're not hurting other people that you can see, you can still be a vehement enemy of God if for no other reason than that you aren't living up to who you were meant to be in Christ because you are turning from God and you're going your own way and you're going further into your own sin and destruction. It's not as though God is someone who's easily offended the way we get offended by someone else's politics or we get offended by the fact that they like the new Taylor Swift song or they they like Chick-fil-A and not Zaxby's or these matters of taste. It's that our sin radically disrupts and destroys the goodness of God's creation. And so often what happens is that the aspect of creation that we destroy the most with our sin is ourselves. So I'm the libertarian ethic of I can do whatever I want so long as it doesn't hurt anybody. It doesn't work in God's eyes because he's like, I'm not just concerned about everybody else. I'm concerned about you and how you're destroying yourself. And so I urge you this morning that if you've not confronted the fact that outside of Christ you're alienated from God, don't kid yourself. Don't assume that everything is going to be okay and that you can just keep skating on the thin ice because there's so much beauty and joy and love in Christ. And although it's tough to admit how broken we are, it is then that we are ready to receive the, the redemption and the reconciliation that is offered in Christ. Our story doesn't have to end with a brokenness. Because Paul didn't reference all of this in verse 21 to stop there. He did it in order to remind the Colossians of how great the reconciliation with God really is. He's not trying to beat them up. He's saying, look, that's who you once were. And then immediately in verse 22, he says, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. And there's so much to unpack here. Because here we see the magnitude of what Christ has done for us in his supremacy over creation in the church and in his sufficiency as Savior. Jesus has reconciled us to God, and we're not saved from the Father, but to the Father. And we, we talk about that a lot here, and because it's important, because so often we can go through life thinking of the Father as this scary tyrant 
who just can't really stand to be with us. And then Jesus comes along and he's a happy-go-lucky one who's like, hey, dad, like, I, can, I can make this right. It'll be okay. Don't worry. And that's just a terrible view of God. It's a terrible view of the story of redemption. What happens is that the father sends the son. That's how great his love is, John 3, 16, in order to bring us home to him. It's not just a pithy Presbyterian tweet then. We're not playing with prepositions. We are saved to the Father. And that's a beautiful thing that we, despite all of our awful sin and brokenness, we've been brought home to the creator God of all things, the one who knows us better than we know ourselves, who knows everything that is haunting you right now about yourself and you can't stand. He knows it and yet he was willing to die as a son for you. We've been brought home and we've been redeemed and we're a beloved child. And when we hear that, we all really ought to put aside our Presbyterianism and be like a charismatic and cry out, amen, hallelujah. We ought to have joy as we read these kind of things. Because what is more, the way Jesus achieved this by becoming truly human in every way, yet without sin, he was perfect. He endured the minute by minute reality of human life. He endured suffering. He endured temptation from Satan in the wilderness when he was at his weakest, having fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. He was abandoned by all of his friends. He was ridiculed by an entire city, stripped naked, nailed to a cross, and left to die. And yet on that cross, he bore our sins, and he trampled over death by death, all so that he could bring us home to God, and also so that one day he could present us before God holy and blameless and above reproach. I think that last part, if you're like me, often trips us up. Because a lot of times we have what what Cameron has called before a trapdoor theology, where we, we worry that deep down inside, we worry that one day we'll stand before God and we'll be told, depart from me. I never knew you. Like, what makes you think you could get in here when you had all that stuff still going on in your life? And part of our struggle is that we, we are blinded to the future we have in Christ by the sin we see in ourselves right now. And it's sort of like this. Have you ever been presented before someone in a way that didn't actually reflect who you are? Like, you know, no, my name's Matt. It's not Mark. Or I'm actually five foot five, not five foot three and three quarters. Like, I need every inch I can get. I'm Irish. And, you know, those are goofy examples, but on the other hand, maybe it's more like this. You're sitting in class, and your teacher decides, oh, your essay was awesome. It's great work. And on the inside, you know that you lifted it from Wikipedia and SparkNotes. Or someone talks about your spiritual maturity or how, how great it is to see young people who love Jesus in a, in a relationship walking towards marriage, and you know that, that the two of you have been, been going too far and wrestling with things, and you're not crying out for help, and you can't even really talk to each other about what just happened last night. You're like, I don't know if we're as mature as these people think we are. There's a gap. And so often, that's what we're feeling. We look at our lives now. We still see the sin that we're still fighting against in Christ. And we think about the future. We're like, there's a a gap there. There I, I, I can't have any assurance. And yet, that's exactly why it's so crucial for us to meditate on the depths of our reconciliation in Christ because so many of us look at how we are now, modeled and spotted with sin, this murky mixture of desires and motivations where even our acts, our good works and good deeds in Christ seem to be speckled with pride. And we project that mixed state of sin and holiness upon the canvas of eternity. We think that's how we're always gonna be. 
And then we start to worry about the last judgment. We, we go, oh man, I'm not perfect yet. I'm still wrestling with this thing. Like I've been fighting this sins for a decade and it's still coming up. So what if I'm not saved? And we stop thinking about the future. So then we stop thinking about Christ. And we either live on in this neurotic state of fear and incapacitating introspection, or we stop looking at all. We shut our eyes and we grow stale and cold and hard and we drift out to sea, as it were, without a sail, without an anchor to stop us. And notice, though, in either way, if we just look only in on ourselves or if we shut our eyes to everything at all, in either case, we've shifted our gaze from the hope we have in Christ. And that's why in the, in the culmination of these three verses, Paul in verse 23 urges us to remain stable and steadfast in our faith and, and not to shift from the hope we have in the gospel. Because the great mistake of that trapdoor theology, the great mistake so many of us make day in and day out that often keeps us from coming to worship at all or that sort of ruins our worship when we're here and fills our mind instead of Christ is ourselves. We look in the mirror. We sit down in the sin cinema where everything that bothers you about yourself is just played on repeat. And yet notice the way Paul uses pronouns in these verses. Because he's saying he, Jesus, is the one who reconciles us to God. He, Jesus, is the one who presents us holy and blameless and above reproach. And so often, we're terrible spiritual grammarians, as it were. And we replace me with, or we replace he with me. We put ourselves in place of Christ. We act like it all depends upon us. And on the heels of a passage that was all about the supremacy of Christ, we suddenly lift ourselves up supreme and act like everything depends upon us. And so, if you're wrestling with that question that haunts a lot of us and that so many books have been written about, can I lose my salvation? You have to start in the previous verses that we talked about last week and remember that Christ is supreme and he's sufficient. Because as we read that warning, we might think like, oh man, you know, Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, like suddenly it sounds like he is saying it's all on us, and so we have to zoom back out and think for a moment. Because if you took that verse, you could you can make it say that. But why would Paul, with a church that is being told by these false teachers that Jesus is not enough, that they've got to add rigorous asceticism, that they've got to do a whole bunch of other stuff, that there might be other angels that they need to deal with and spirit, supernatural things, all this other stuff that they have to add to Christ. Why would Paul do the same thing and say, oh no, you don't need that stuff, but you do need to make sure that your faith is perfect and ironclad in your hope. It's all about your performance. He'd be doing the same thing, which would be silly because Paul's not dumb. He's not saying that it all hinges upon us. Because biblically speaking, it's a bad question to ask, can I lose my salvation? Because it's not ours to lose or to keep. It's Christ to give and to preserve in us. He gives his life. He gives salvation. He reconciles us to God. We receive him, and we follow him, and we trust in him. And in saying that that's a bad question, I'm not saying, though, that if you're wrestling with that, that you should never ask anybody that. Because in fact, if that question is tormenting you, you have to talk to someone. You need to start and talk to God and be honest with him and be like, Lord, I'm wondering if, if I'm even saved. I don't know if this is all a sham in my life or not. God's big enough to deal with those kind of prayers. Those are the prayers he wants more than you just piously saying the same thing you've always said. Now you would be getting somewhere. But two, 
you know, it's, it's kind of interesting to me, um, since I've been at Christ Community Church, it's pretty rare that you find a Presbyterian church that's called a community church. Like, usually that's a non-denom flag, but I really like the name of our church because it reminds us that first, Christ is supreme. He's the first word in it. And then two, he has brought us together as a community, as a redeemed and beloved family of God's people. And we're the church. We're the ones called out and sent into the world to bring the gospel. And so we ought to, as community, help each other. That if you're wondering, like, I don't even know why I come here because I don't know if I'm really a Christian. Anyone on staff, any of the elders, the deacons, even just the person sitting next to you, we, we ought to be here and we are here for each other. And so if you are wrestling with that question, even though it's not a truly biblical question and like that, that, that's the truth of revelation, it is a question that's real and that's heavy and there are answers for it here in Christ. So we have to work through it together. And in working through it, one of the things we'll find is that there's a distinction between when we're saved, when we go from being alienated to reconciled to God, and then as we grow in our assurance of salvation. It's sort of like, and this, this metaphor is not perfect, but it's sort of like if, if you're a child who grows up in a home and you have two parents who, who love you, they've loved you since before you were born, and they'll love you until the day they or you die. And yet, as you grow up, you understand that love more and more. And it's not necessarily that their love for you changes, it's just that you appreciate it more. And depending on how you act, especially as a young kid, is gonna depend on how you experience that. Like if you act out, you're gonna experience the love of discipline and spankings and timeouts and all that good stuff, no PlayStation or whatever, whatever it may be. But as you get older, um, which you will in parents, they'll, they'll get better, you start to love your parents in a deeper way and you experience it in this, in this awesome way that's not, not exactly friendship, um, but, but that is just wonderful. And no, no matter if you've had good parents or if you haven't, that's always an imperfect relationship. It, it's just a shadow, though, of what we have in Christ. And the reason I use that example, though, is because oftentimes if you're, a, if you're a child who grows up in the church, like I did, you can read a text like this and you can see, okay, once there was this time where you were alienated and then you, you received Christ and then you're reconciled. And those seem to be like two massively distinct periods in your life. But if you're a church kid, you're like, I've always known about the gospel. I've always known who Christ is. I've always known about Jesus' supremacy and sufficiency. So I can't really say there's this time where I, I felt totally alienated from God. But there are times where I seem to be doing evil deeds because I'm being a rebellious teenager or just being a little stinker at home. So when did I actually become a Christian? And we look for this single moment in time where we can point to it and be like, that, that's the moment. And for, like, for me, probably six to eight years that just haunted me and tortured me. I was like, I don't really know when I became a Christian. I just, I'm pretty sure I am one. And so if you're, if you're growing up in the church and you wrestle with that, what you have to remember is that you don't have to find the precise moment when you, when you were saved or when you prayed the prayer the right way. What you're growing in is not how much you've been saved. You've been saved to the uttermost in Christ. What you grow in and what we all grow in, whether or not you're a church kid or you're a church 40-year-old, is we grow in our, under, in our assurance of the hope we have in Christ. We grow in our experience of the reality of our salvation. It's not like you go one day being saved, one day not being saved. It's you go one day really understanding and, and just delighting in the reality that you are saved and you go in another day where you're like, it, you kind of forget it and it's not as real to you. And yet in those dark days, we have to remember that it's still true. And it's still true not because of us or how we feel in the moment, but because of Christ who is supreme and who is sufficient. 
And it's interesting then, when Paul uses these words, stable and steadfast, he's not saying like, you've got to have some sort of faith that never has any doubts. And again, doubt's not the opposite of faith, pride is. Those words he's using refer to a house that's well built. And that's fascinating because Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talks about he who builds his rock on the sand and it gets swept away in the storms and the floods and he who builds his house on the rock, Christ. And it's powerful to think about those images this morning as Irma is coming towards us fast or maybe slow, maybe that's part of the problem, I don't remember. Either way, it's a big storm. And the point is that so often as we use the means of grace, what we're doing is we're building up the house of our faith on Christ. And as we use the means of grace, that house, that house is strengthened and it, it has more rooms in it. There are more experiences of Christ in your life, experiences of the, of the freedom of forgiveness, experience of the, the joys of the fellowship you have with him. And if your house is built on Christ, then no matter what comes and how bad things get, it will stand because of who Christ is. And so when Paul talks about shifting from the hope of the gospel, he's not saying that you're, you're depressed or you have questions. What he's talking about is someone who takes their house and just goes and builds it on something entirely differently. Who says, you know, I, I, I was going to roll with Christ, but, you know, these false teachers came in and I think I like what they have better. And so I'm going to go off and do that instead. And so what he's talking about with the shifting of hope is not our subjective experience of hope, but where you're looking, where you're building your house of faith. And so often what, what Christ will do is he will lead us through so much to build up that house so that then when the storms do come, we can still rest assured, built upon the rock in him, knowing that, that even if we've been doing all of these things and reading our Bibles and suddenly the work week goes crazy and you don't have five minutes in scripture for the whole week put together, that he is still Lord and he's still supreme and you still have a hope. And so as we draw things to a close, it's worth you asking yourself, as you look in your life or you take stock about your life this morning, have you ever wondered if you've lost your salvation? And if the answer is yes, especially if the answer is yes, and I'm wondering that right now, you've got to stop and you've got to ask yourself another question. How did you get there? Were you making use of the means of grace? Were you, were you coming to worship? Were you reading the word? Did you have a question that you didn't ask? Did you have a sin that you didn't deal with? And then you have to ask, well, why didn't I? And oftentimes it's just because we're scared of God. And yet in Christ, we know we need not be afraid. We have a family here to help each other. Because once you figure out how you got there, then you need to say, well, what did I or what will I look to to get me out of this dark place? And the answer is Christ. This, this quote from Calvin we have in the bulletin is, is really great. He says that Paul takes notice of this relationship which subsists between faith and the gospel when he says that the Colossians will be settled in the faith only in the event of their not falling back from the hope of the gospel, that is, the hope which shines forth upon us through means of the gospel. For where the gospel is, there is the hope of everlasting salvation. So let us, however, bear in mind that the sum of all is contained in Christ. Hence, Paul is enjoining it upon them, the Colossians, here to shun all doctrines which lead away from Christ so that the minds of men are otherwise occupied. The point is that if you're wrestling, if you are wondering if you're saved, if you're doubting, if you're plagued by besetting sin, the place to run is the same. It is the hope of the gospel. It is in Christ. And that will not change no matter what comes your way in life. 
And it's interesting too, as Paul describes the gospel, he says it's been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And scholars get all kind of funny about this. They're like, well, it hadn't been preached everywhere yet. And so they wonder, you know, what is Paul talking about? And really what he's getting at is that this gospel is the one that can give us all hope. And it's still going out. And I think it's worth us pondering that this morning, 2,000 years later, it still has the power to give you rest from anxiety and from uncertainty and from whatever it is that's troubling your heart because maybe you really do feel like you're the Gulf Coast this morning and that Irma and Harvey or the spiritual equivalents are pounding you relentlessly. You're overcome by devastating floodwaters of doubt or despair. You're tattered by the winds of ever-changing circumstances and yet here in Christ you have a steadfast anchor of hope. And so look to him. You're united to him in faith and there's no better way to be reminded of that union than to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. For it is here at the table that our hope is made visible, that we get a foretaste of the inheritance we have in heaven. And so let us now, as we, we close our time in the word, and Cameron will get ready to lead us in our time in the table, let us, let us pray together and, and turn to the Lord of our hope, Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we thank you, Lord, <clears throat> for this day. We thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can come we can worship, Lord, that we can see your word and we're reminded, Lord, that though we were once alienated from you, that in Christ we've been reconciled. Jesus, we thank you that you lived a perfect life. You endured temptation without sin and you endured death and through death defeated death and the devil and our sin. We thank you that one day you will present us before God holy and blameless and above all reproach. Lord, so often we, we struggle to believe that. So help our unbelief. Help us not to, to, to get distracted by what we see in ourselves, but to discover more the wonders of who you are, the wonders of God's love for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a church that is honest about the questions that actually bother us. That we wouldn't just get distracted by study questions in, in books, but that we would ask the questions that fill our hearts so that we could grow, grow as community, grow in our understanding and our assurance of how much you love us. Help us, Lord, to as we use the means of grace this morning to, to build our house upon the rock of Christ, trusting that that rock will not be overcome, that it will not go anywhere, and that, Lord, you will hold us fast as your people. We give you thanks. We give you thanks and ask that your spirit would, would be with us this week as we go out, and would you, would you be with your people, Lord, both here and in the places affected by the storms even more severely? Would you watch over us and give us opportunity, Lord, to take that gospel and to proclaim it under all creation under the heavens as there may be many opportunities for people searching for hope as their houses may quite literally have been washed away. Lord, will we not waste such opportunities, but will we be faithful and comforting to those who need hope in Christ? It's in his name we pray. Amen.